Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Well, hi again, everybody. I'm Tom Brenneman, and welcome to Dialed In. Great to have you with us. As always, we thank the Believe Network for hosting our program and the outstanding work of our producer engineer, as always, Mr. Dave Yiddy Armbruster. All right, so. Uh, you know, we're going to stick with baseball for a little while, uh, seeing that we're roughly a month and a half into the season and uh, a lot of interesting storylines in baseball. But our guest today, I had the privilege of working with over the last 14 years, uh, really on a part-time basis. He's primarily the radio analyst for the Cincinnati Reds and um, would come over and do about 25 games a year with me on television. And I tell you, quite a character. Jeff the Cowboy Brantley. Former Major League All-Star, pitched in the World Series, grew up in Alabama, attended Mississippi State, where he played with the likes of Will Clark and Rafael Palmero and Bobby Thigpen. Anyway, he is our guest today, and I know you're going to enjoy it because, uh, quite honestly, this guy's a piece of work. I mean, he is a piece of work. Jeff the Cowboy Brantley is next, and you're dialed in. Since 1882, Children's Home of Northern Kentucky has been a lifeline for children and families in crisis. Now known as CHNK Behavioral Health, its team of doctors, nurses, and therapists impacts nearly 4,000 kids and families every year. An array of mental health services including counseling, addiction treatment, and psychiatric residential care. CHNK also continues to care for abused and neglected youth who are in the state's custody. Right now, CHNK Behavioral Health is offering a free 10-minute conversation with a clinical therapist to help families dealing with the increased pressures caused by the ongoing pandemic. Visit www.chnk.org for more details or for the free conversation with a therapist, call 1-844-YES-CHNK. Living with Change is a nonprofit organization supporting transgender youth and their families. Transgender youth face higher rates of violence, victimization, substance abuse, suicide risk, and homelessness, but have few resources to help deal with those issues. To combat those numbers and in partnership with Cincinnati's Children's Hospital, LWC created with Living with Change Center for Gender Health serving more transgender patients and families than any other center in the Midwest. For more, please log on to livingwithchange.org. Jeffrey Hoke Brantley was born in Florence, Alabama in September of 1963. After starring in three sports at W.A. Berry High School, it was off to Mississippi State University. He played college baseball, where he was a teammate at Mississippi State of Will Clark, Rafael Palmero and Bobby Thigpen on a Bulldogs team that went to the 1985 College World Series. He still, to this day, owns the SEC record for career wins by a pitcher. In 1985, Brantley was drafted in the sixth round by the San Francisco Giants. After two and a half excellent minor league seasons as a starter, Brantley made his major league debut on August the 5th of 1988 for the Giants as a reliever in Atlanta. In 1989, he pitched in the World Series against Oakland. You may remember that was the Earthquake World Series. We'll talk more about that. I was there that night. Obviously, he was there that night. A year later, he became the Giants' co-closer 
and he stayed there until 1994. As a free agent, he signed with Cincinnati, and in 1996, he would lead the National League in saves with a franchise record 44. After that, injuries began to set in. Stops in St. Louis, Philadelphia, and Texas. Brantley retired at the end of the 2001 season with 172 major league saves. The following year, he started what has been a stellar broadcasting career at ESPN. After four years, he was hired by the team he grew up rooting for and pitched for the Cincinnati Reds. Brantley has four children, Emily and Murphy, and he and his wife Ashley have two other children, Elizabeth and Mason. Okay, Jeff Brantley, of all the things that I just mentioned, what did I fail to mention or maybe something you're most proud of? <laughs> uh, you covered pretty much everything. I will say this, Tom, and, and this kind of gets lost in the shuffle back from the Mississippi State days when you talk about wins because the last year that I was at Mississippi State, I was 18-2, and two, and the 18 wins has been an SEC record since the day I, I walked off that campus. And I understand that there's – there's 45 wins there, and that, that's an SEC record. But 18 wins uh, for one person in a year, that's a whole lot of wins. You better believe it. It never. It kind of gets lost in the shuffle. Yeah, it was lost in my shuffle, so I beg your pardon, and I'm <laughs> glad you pointed that out. So thank you. You know, when, when, when you were a little boy, Jeff, and, and I've heard you talk about this from time to time, um, didn't you used to sit in your driveway actually in a car and listen to Major League Baseball games on the radio because you thought you wanted to be a broadcaster. Yeah, I, from the time that I first started listening to sports, um, I think I was a fan of the voices more than I was a fan of the game. Um, and I know that's kind of hard for people to understand, especially after you, you've played a long time. But I, I've just always been, and I still am, I, I love hearing the voices of different sports and I used to sit in the driveway with my dad and we would listen to Cincinnati Reds games now being a guy in in Alabama listening to a game all the way in Ohio seems kind of crazy but that's how that's how big of the reach that 700 WLW was at the time now we would start listening to the ball game at six o'clock our time which was seven o'clock in Cincinnati but the crazy part about it is that station was a, a a Mexican station up until Six o'clock. It was all Spanish. You you could I mean nobody would listen to it in Alabama unless you could understand Spanish. And yet right at six o'clock, boom, here come the Reds. So you wouldn't know it unless you were a Reds fan. And the only way that you could get it is if and keep it on the dial is if you were in the car in the driveway. You couldn't get it on the stereo inside the house. You had to listen to it <laughs> in the driveway. And the car had to be moving backwards and forward <laughs> in order to keep it held. So here me and my dad are sitting in the driveway. I'm sure the neighbors thought we were nuts driving up and down in the driveway just to hold the station and listen to the rest. You know, that had to be an incredible uh, bonding time for you and your dad. You lost him a number of years ago. Your mother's still alive. Um, you know, you, you look back and, and obviously the time and the support that your your parents gave you uh, in everything, not just athletics, but but, but but talk a little bit about, you know, uh, my daughter just read a letter to my wife and me and to our son. She's graduating from high school next week. And and she went back and, and covered some of the things that, you know, maybe we said and little things we'd never remember. Do you have anything like that with your mom and dad? You look back and you're like, man, that, that was just awesome. I mean, I'm sure there are 10,000 of them, but does anything really stand out for you? 
think probably as as much as anything. Um, I, I know that that my dad, when I was growing up, um, you know, the, the only thing that I wanted to do was was play baseball. I, I really didn't want to play any other sports, um, simply because a lot of those sports were involved. There were there was contact involved, and and I was just not a you know, as a kid, I was kind of passive. I just didn't, I didn't like that. And I know, I, I remember my dad telling me, look, there, there are other things out there. What happens if you get hurt, you hurt your arm, you can't play baseball. You might want to play something else. So why not experience it? And figured out I could throw a football pretty good. Ended up being a quarterback on a pretty good high school football team. And I, and I was a wrestler back in my high school days. And, and I know that it's kind of kind of weird hearing that in today's world because a lot of kids only play one sport because it's year round. Yeah. But I think the the best thing that happened to me as a kid was not only enjoying the the game of baseball, but enjoying the competition of of one on one and on a wrestling mat or having a team sport that that you're really physical in football. I, I think it just taught me a lot more about myself and. You know, sometimes as a man, there are a lot of challenges that you have, not just as a high school kid, but as you move on in your life. And if you can overcome some of those obstacles when you're a young kid, it really helps you as you as you get older and you have children of your own. When you were coming out of high school, I mean, obviously, you know, you're quarterback of the football team. I believe your team won its high school state championship, if I'm not mistaken, when you were the quarterback. Um, uh, we, we did not. We did not win the high school state championship when I was the quarterback. We did win it, but I was not the quarterback. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, you played on a state championship team, so that's yeah, you can't. But, but obviously, now baseball. By the time you hit, you know, your senior year, um, you know, you, you're this big stud pitcher. But are you being heavily recruited at that point in time? No, I, I was not, Tom, and, and I really was not even the second or third best player on our team. We had two other players on our high school team that I thought were way better than me. Um, there was, there was one guy that was on our team. He was about six, three, about two thirty, threw harder than me, uh, ran faster, hit the ball further. Um, but he didn't, he didn't really, he didn't really do what he was supposed to do off the field. And, you know, when, when coaches would come in from different colleges, you know, they're not only asking about what you do on the field. They're asking about your grade. Sure. They're asking about your family. They're asking about, you know, how does this kid relate with his teammates? What happens off the field? You know, they ask a lot of questions, mm-hmm. especially now, because you, you want a guy that, that's got some good character. And this kid just, just had some, some issues and really didn't get any scholarship offers. And he was not only a great baseball player, he was a great football player, too. And didn't get a chance to play anywhere. Mm. So, you know, just being able to, to play with guys, you know, you were always pushed. We had a, we had a really good team my senior year. We won the state championship and had a lot of other, I mean, we had nine guys off of my high school team that played major college baseball. Wow. Wow. That's a lot of players off one high school. That's a lot team. of players. I mean, that's crazy. So you go to Mississippi state and uh, now correct me if I'm wrong here. Um, we were talking about this with Dave Armbruster, our producer engineer. You grew up a huge Alabama fan. And, I mean, these are back in the days, Alabama football. Of course, they, they, they've never been better than they are now. But, I mean, they, they were, you know, top of the heap back in those days when you're growing up. Is that where you wanted to pitch? <laughs> uh, that's definitely where I wanted to pitch. Um, I, I know growing up, you are, I mean, as a kid, you're watching Bear Bryant on the sideline. And, I mean, in Alabama, you pick one or two teams. It's either Auburn or Alabama. There's, there's not a whole lot else if you're an Alabama kid. Right. And 
we were always Alabama fans. We would go watch the ball games at Legion Field in Birmingham, and I just I just always just assumed that if I if I played a sport somewhere, it would be at Alabama. And I can remember my senior year, I had several schools that came in to recruit me. Not a big recruiting scenario, but Alabama just happened to be one of them. Guy came and watched me play. Game is over. He comes and talks to my dad. He tells my dad that he goes, well, number one, he's not big enough, so we won't be talking to him, and we won't be offering him a scholarship. Mm. The rest of it really doesn't matter at this point because we're going to recruit this kid, Dana Williams, in Mobile. That was the end of the conversation. It was very abrupt. It was kind of like, see you later. Um, nice to meet you. And that was it. Um, and I, I'm not sure my dad was real happy about that. I, I know it really disappointed me. And here you go a couple of weeks later, Mississippi State comes calling. And I thought, well, I will just be the guy that never loses to Alabama. And that's kind of how it turned around. You play, you go to Mississippi State and you play with a chip on your shoulder. Did you did you take it to Alabama? By the way, did you ever lose to them? I lost one time, and and I'll tell you the story on that. Pitching in a ball game at Mississippi State, we were winning, I think, four to one, and I had pitched uh, six innings in the ball game. And and back then we played seven inning double headers. So, in the middle of the sixth inning, we're hitting, and it starts pouring down rain. And instead of canceling the ball game or or playing the next day. We sat for two and a half, almost two hours and 45 minutes and came back on the field, and I went back out there to pitch. The oh, my thing. gosh. That, that was a mistake. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's the only time that I ever lost to Alabama. So there you go. You know, you, you, you talked about, and I find this really interesting, you talked about, you know, a high school kid or two that were better on your high school team. You get to Mississippi State, and I brought up earlier, you know, playing with guys like Will Clark and Rafael Palmero and Bobby Thigpen. You know, you put you in there, and all four of you wound up uh, being all-stars in the major leagues. But when you're in college, and I know you're playing top-notch competition in the Southeastern Conference, no debate about that. But the bottom line is, is you and nobody else around there has played professional baseball and maybe not even seen a ton of professional baseball outside of maybe catching a few games once a week on television. Did you feel like you and those other guys were destined to be major league players? Forget stars, forget all-stars. Did you feel like just watching those guys through a college season, along with yourself, that, you know what, we're going to make it? You know, I, I, it's funny you ask me that because I've had a lot of people ask me that before. When I looked at Raphael and Will and watched them hit, I thought to myself, that's what a big leaguer is about. Yeah. You know, and so when you would face them in practice, you're thinking, all right, well, this is what, you know, you really have to dial up your game. I mean, you, you never faced them where you didn't really have it together. I mean, it just was the way it, I mean, otherwise they would embarrass you. But I'll be honest with you, Tom, I, I never thought of myself as being uh, anything other than where I was at at the moment. I never thought of myself as being a major league pitcher. I never really even dreamed about it, to be honest with you. But one thing I did dream about was being a major league broadcaster. And that, that is the one thing I've always thought about since I was about eight years old. And, you know, it, it, it's really funny how life has its twists and turns, but my mom will tell you, I've gotten to live two dreams. I, I got to play major league baseball, which was probably my dad's dream uh, for his son. 
But my dream has always been to do what I'm doing right now, and that is broadcasting for the Cincinnati Reds. How crazy is that? I mean, you know, thank God above. Um, you, you, you go to pro ball. You're drafted in the sixth round despite winning 18 games, as you mentioned, at Mississippi State. I mean, you know, you're, you're right there as, as one of the top probably two, three pitchers in all of college baseball. But, you, but, but you're not drafted till the sixth round. Why? Five nine and a half, one eighty five. Yep, yep. And I and I and I threw the ball eighty eight miles an hour. Now I could hit a nap's ass from sixty feet six inches, but <laughs> nobody 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 really cared about that. I, I'll be honest with you. Um, I think just my tenacity on the mound really kind of got me to the to the sixth round. But if you looked around in college baseball at that time, there were a lot of guys that had a lot of strikeouts. And I mean, I had, a, I had a good bit, but not like some of these other guys, but they weren't playing in the SEC. And, you know, you, if you win 18 ball games and you lose two in today's college sport of, of baseball, you're one of the top two or three picks in the No, country. no question about it. And there was nobody else that had the win numbers that I had, nor did they have the ERA, but they were all six foot one, six foot two. I mean, when people saw me, they asked me, well, so what do you play? Second base? I mean, that's really what they thought. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the pitchers are always the, the tallest, the biggest guys on the team. That was not, that was not my makeup. My makeup was from the inside out, not from the outside in. You're a starting pitcher at Mississippi State, but when you get in the Giants organization, you have two really good years, two and a half really good years as a starter. But now all of a sudden in August of 1988, you are brought up to the big league club and make your major league debut as a reliever. Uh, I'm assuming, and and I I shouldn't assume, when they brought you up, did they tell you that's where you were going to pitch the rest of that season, however long you were there? You did make one start that year, but I think you pitched in eight or nine other games out of the bullpen. What was that like making the transition uh, and, and really starting your major league career doing something that really you weren't doing regularly as a high schooler or a collegian or even a minor leaguer. Yeah. At that time, I really didn't understand exactly why I knew that I had started my entire life uh, all through high school, Mississippi state, and really through my entire minor league career until I got to AAA, and I had started and then I pitched a little bit out of the bullpen, but I had pitched out of the bullpen just because it was something that, our team needed at that time. And I was on a work day and I said, look, I can, I, I pitched on three days rest in college. I can pitch on three days rest here. And I pitched out of the pen and they liked what they saw. And so when I got to the big leagues, we had a bunch of veteran guys that were starters, but we didn't really have anybody that could fill the, the middle innings. And Roger Craig at the time, I mean, he was, he was never one that, really wanted to put people in roles. He just said, look, this is where you're going to be. And it just ended up being one of those things, Tom, where I really liked it. I liked being able to go to the ballpark every day, knowing I had a chance to pitch. Yeah. And it kind of, it kind of fueled me and it, and it helped me get in a rhythm that I had really never had before because going to the ballpark and pitching once every fifth day, that, that just wasn't a, that didn't fit in my mentality because I was trying to figure out what am I going to do these other four days? I mean, I was always used to doing something all the time. And when I got to the big leagues and they're saying once every fifth day, and really it was in AAA where that started, once every fifth day, I, I've just, 
I had too much time on my hands and not being able to kind of fill that, that void mentally. I was never in a good rhythm. But once I hit the bullpen, that was money. A year later in 1989, you're a huge part of that bullpen, and, and that was such an exciting year, that Giants team and Kevin Mitchell and your, your old running buddy Will Clark and Robbie Thompson and you know that whole gang, and you reach a World Series against Oakland. Game one comes around, and here you are, getting loose in the bullpen, the mighty Oakland A's. They've got McGuire and Conseco and all these, these monsters in that lineup. And in game one, here you come with the bases loaded to face Dave Parker. <laughs> Dave Parker. You grew up watching that guy. Yeah, I grew up watching him embarrass major league pitchers, and here I am warming up in the bullpen. And, you know, I had gotten used to kind of the way that Roger would use us at, at that point in time. But most of the time, if there was a left-hander coming up in a, in a crucial situation, it would have been Craig Lefferts or, or maybe Dave Dravecki or even Atlee Hammaker at that point. And, and I'm just kind of sitting there thinking, all right, if I'm looking through the lineup, he's not going to take Russell out of the game right now, and the next batter is Parker. And I'm the only one loosening in the bullpen. It, it's the first game. Sure enough, bases loaded, <laughs> and here I come. And I get to the mound, and I'm telling you, Tom, the only thing I could think about was being eight, nine years old and listening, listening to the Reds and listening to Parker hitting the ball 100 miles. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, i got to get this out of my head. I'm in the World Series. You know, you got all this stuff just spinning through your That's head. That's amazing. That's amazing. And then Terry Kennedy gets behind the play, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to throw this guy a split. Maybe he'll hit it off the end of the bat, and we'll get out of this. And he calls a fastball inside. I shook him off, and he calls it again, and I thought, oh, God, help me. And he moves inside <laughs> underneath the plate. I throw the fastball in there, and Parker hits it right off his hands, a little dribbler to the second baseman, Robbie Thompson. I was like, oh, my gosh, I felt like I pitched nine innings. I did. That's that much emotion at that time. It was crazy. That is a great story. I and, mean, Dave Parker, uh, whoa, what a player. That's, that's a different topic for a different time. I happened to be at that World Series. I was basically Johnny Bench's caddy because he was my partner on the Reds television uh, network in those days back in, in 1989. And he had asked me, he said, hey, look, he said, you got any vacation time coming up? I'm like, yeah, why? He said, well, I'm announcing the, the World Series for CBS Radio. And he said, I, I, I'll pay for your vacation wherever the World Series is played. I'll pay for it. Uh, hotel, airfare, give you a per diem. The only thing you have to do, Tom, is get my wife to the ballpark when I tell you to get her there. And I said, okay, cool. So it turns out, you know, here it is, San Francisco against Oakland. So, uh, you know, I get Laura to the, to the ballpark, game one and game two over in Oakland. Now I come over to game three, and I had some really good friends that lived out there. So, you know, Johnny would get me four tickets to every game. So I had three buddies of mine. And I, I drop Laura off. It's like four hours before the game. So we're in the parking lot at Candlestick, tailgating, having a couple of beers, whole nine yards. Now we're walking up, and, and all of a sudden, the earthquake hits. Um, you were pitching for the Giants, obviously. Where were you when that earthquake hit? I was coming down the tunnel from the locker room to the first base. Yeah, that's a long tunnel. It's a long tunnel. And, you know, we had had some, some other times where we had a little bit of, um, 
you know, rumblings and, you know, the ground shake a little bit. I mean, that's just kind of part of living in San Francisco. But as I'm, I'm walking down the tunnel with Mike Lacoste, who is probably twice as tall as me. I mean, you remember sure. Mike Lacoste. He was a big, tall, right-handed pitcher. And he's kind of having to duck a little bit anyway coming down that tunnel. And it sounded like a like you were standing next to a train. That's what it felt like. And the ground felt the same, kind of kind of shaking, that real loud, thundering noise mm-hmm. over and over again. Uh, not something that's easily to, to forget, I can assure you. But the, the crazy part about it is the tunnel began to kind of turn visually to us, kind of left, right, left, right. And we both looked at each other, and there was never a word said. We just looked at each other, eyes wide open, and we both took off running because the lights totally went dark in that tunnel. The only light we could see was at the end of the tunnel where the light was coming into the first base dugout steps. And we're running, tripping over. You know how much garbage is in that. The crazy equipment and all the stuff that's in the tunnel. We're tripping, trying to fumble down that thing in the dark. And I, I just instinctively took my glove and put it under my right arm thinking, okay, I'm trying to protect my arm and my glove at the same time. And instead of sticking my right hand out, I stuck my left hand against the concrete wall and just ran down the tunnel with my guiding myself by my left hand. Mm. Well, cinder block is not smooth. And I, I remember getting into the dugout and looking at my fingers and they were kind of bleeding a little bit and thinking, God, that was crazy. But by the time we got to the dugout, everything there was, there was no more earthquake. I mean, that's how fast it comes and goes. And we're sitting on the field and everybody is absolutely speechless. It's just like looking around, like what the heck just happened? And then everything unfolds and, and nobody could shut up. I mean, everybody was, we were scared. We didn't know what happened. Are we going to play? Are we just going to stand here? And, the people in the stands, I mean, a lot of the players, especially the Oakland players, they were trying to get their family out of the stands because yep. this, is a, this is a baseball mentality for you. We're thinking, okay, stadium collapses, the best place to be is at second base because maybe it'll collapse around us. So we all start migrating towards the center of the field. I mean, that's just kind of how you think sure. in a moment like that. And there are – there's – people going crazy. I can remember Terry Steinbach's wife coming out of the stands. She was hysterical. She jumps on him. She's got her legs and her arms wrapped around him. Cameras trying to put on every player. Uh, it was just, it, it was the craziest thing I've ever seen. And then the fans, they start chanting, let's play yep, ball. Yep. And we're all like, well, cause at that point in time, we knew, okay, the, the Bay Bridge had gone down. We knew that the 880 Expressway on the Oakland side had collapsed, all three layers. We knew that the marina was on fire. You know, you start getting all this information yep. that the fans in the stands aren't getting. We didn't know whether we could play or not. Well, it's funny you say that because I, I, after, you know, it all happened and then, and, and then, you know, you try to explain to people how calm all of a sudden it was everywhere. And, and I remember we were standing in line to get a beer and they had these electronic cash registers. And, you know, we're wondering why it's taking so long. Well, the electricity's out. Okay, so, you know, we're standing there, standing there, and then all of a sudden this fellow in front of us has on a pair of radio headphones, and he just says, oh, my God. And he takes them off, and he turns around, and we're like, oh, my God, what's wrong? You okay? He says, the Bay Bridge just collapsed. He said, there there, there are hundreds of people dead. Well, at that moment you realize, all right, we got to find a way to get out of here. So I've always been curious I had to drive three friends of mine through San Francisco. Power is completely out. 
I don't know the town, but I'm driving them. There's looting going on. I'm dropping each of them off. I'm staying out across the Golden Gate Bridge. And I remember when I finally got to the Golden Gate Bridge and I'm going across, going into to Marin County, I look back over my right shoulder where you're so used to seeing the, the lights of San Francisco and you know all this kind of stuff, and, and, and all, it's pitch black. And, and I'm pitch curious, black. what did you do after all of this happened? I mean, you get in your car, you've got, you know, you, you got to get back home. What did you do? It took us about, I guess, about four hours before we could actually get out of the ballpark. And I remember the, the time frame because Marty Demerit, who was our AAA pitching coach, he was there and he was trying to reach his wife. Well, not only was electricity out, cell service, everything was out. And she was on her way. She had told him that she was on her way to the game from the Oakland side. And he was afraid that she was either on the 880 Expressway or on the Bay Bridge. Sure. And he was worried to death because we hadn't heard from her. And it took, it took that entire time. It was four hours and a few minutes before he actually got her. And he said, you know, he said that, that she told him, she said, I never left. She said the game came on and I was late getting out of here. So a lot of people just stayed where they were to see the opening of the World Series before they got back on the road. So actually the the opening of the World Series saved a lot of people from being on the road. I mean, that's kind of a, a saving grace in its own right because everybody wanted to see all the banter and everything to, to begin things. So because that was the first game in San Francisco. But by the time we left there, it was bumper to bumper traffic. I mean, there were there were cars trying to get out of San yep. Francisco, yep. and we had we. My parents were staying at the Hilton at the airport, which at the time was one of the newer hotels in that area. We get to the hotel, and I, I remember thinking because we've all watched those movies like Earthquake or the the tornado movie. Yeah, this was like Earthquake. The the building had huge cracks in the side of the wall. You could see rebar through the concrete. Uh, my parents were staying on the second floor. The elevators were shut off. People were laying down in the lobby, had, had sheets and blankets. Uh, it, it, it looked like a homeless shelter. That's what it looked like. And we're trying to go up the steps, and the guy says, you can't get up that way. The, the steps have collapsed on the top, upper floors. And I said, we're just trying to get to the second floor. He said, well, I would hurry. <laughs> I'm thinking, I would hurry. So, you know, I mean, you're, you're, this is just like a disaster. Yeah. And it was a disaster. But we got up, got my parents' bags. We got them back into my car. We were living in Foster City at the time, which was another 10, 15 minutes normally down the road, mm-hmm. so just two and a half hours. Uh, we finally got to Foster City. We get into the apartment. We pull in, and my daughter and my mother-in-law are just standing in the front, oblivious to anything that just happened, and looking at us like, why are you all home? Yep. Yep. Had, yep. had no idea that, that there was an earthquake, but you get inside and all, all the, all the furniture was still standing, but everything that was, um, I guess, North and South, it, like the stuff on the sink in the bathroom, everything had fallen into the sink. Well, they had been outside the whole time. They had, they didn't even, they just kind of figured, well, it was a little bit, but had no idea of the magnitude of the earthquake. Mm. In 1990, uh, you become a co-closer for the Giants with Steve Bedrosian, who had had an outstanding Major League career. You end up going to the All-Star game. That year it was at uh, Chicago's Wrigley Field. Now, as a competitor, I would imagine, you know, 
the ultimate goal is playing in the World Series, pitching in the World Series, winning the World Series. But when you make the All-Star game, from a strictly individual standpoint, do you feel like, wow, I have truly made it? This is this is a incredible accomplishment. I, I tell you what it's like, Tom. You walk into that locker room. Number one, I was very excited about making the All-Star team. And I, and I could remember our general manager, Al Rosen, who rode my butt from the time I got there till the time I left. He, he came up, um, and after they had, were starting to announce the players on the club, and I had, didn't, have, didn't know I would made it or anything else, he came up and found me in the hallway, and he said, congratulations, kid. He said, you finally arrived. He said, you have made the all-star team. And I, was, I just kind of looked at him like, are you like kidding with me here? Is this really happening? But when you when you make something like that, especially that early in your career, when you when you walk into that room, into that locker room with all of those players that you've been watching, and some of them you've been watching since you were fourteen years sure. old, and your locker is behind or beside guys like Andre Dawson, and you're facing guys like Cecil Fielder, and you're thinking. <laughs> is this a dream? I mean, that that's the point in time when you hear somebody say, "I had to pinch myself." You know exactly what they're talking about. Now, you know, strangely enough, a couple of years later, uh, Rod Beck becomes the closer. You're still a big part of the bullpen, but now they've got this 23 year old in Rod Beck, who's now the closer. 94 hits, and for the first time, you're a free agent. Um, you signed with the team, as you mentioned earlier, that you grew up rooting for, the Cincinnati Reds. That had to be another kind of out of body experience. Yeah, it was a it was totally different um, during that time because the two teams that wanted me to come and pitch for them were the Reds and what everyone in the South assumes or at back in that time was their hometown team was the Atlanta Braves mm-hmm. and and the Braves were playing well then that was the the run of. Smoltz, Glavin, and, and Maddox, and Bobby Cox was the manager, and I, and I had spoken to Bobby several times on the phone about what what exactly would my role be pitching for the Braves, and you know, was I going to start? Was I going to relieve? And to be honest with you, Tom, and, and this goes back to an early question that, that you had asked me and that we talked about, I really wanted to pitch out of the bullpen. I didn't want to start anymore. And I had started a bunch of games in 93 for the Giants especially at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. And I thought, eh, so I, I'm talking to Bobby. And he says, what we'd like for you to do, Jeff, is, is come in. You'll, we want you to be our fifth starter. And on the days that we skip you, we'd like for you to pitch out of the bullpen. Well, as soon as I heard him say, on the days that we'll skip you, I knew that conversation was over. Because I just, I just didn't, I didn't have that kind of mentality. I wanted to be someone that you could rely on every day. I wanted to be important. And I think every player wants to feel like they, they matter and that they're an important part of the ball club. And, you know, at that, at that time, uh, there was, I mean, not only were the Reds my favorite team when I was growing up, but the, the emotional turn of my family wanting me to sign with the Braves ended in that. As soon as I heard, when we skip you, it was over. I signed with the Reds and the rest is kind of, the rest in 94 that reds team goes 66 and 48 um we know the world series is canceled um 
Do you feel like, and look, that Giants team you played on that lost in 1989 in the World Series, uh, you know, was another great team. And we always talk about, you know, what's the best team you saw that never won a World Series. And, you know, I'm sure Montreal felt the same way because they had an incredible team and, and didn't get a chance to play in the World Series when it was canceled. But, 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 but did you feel like that team really had what it took to win the whole thing? You had a great regular season while you were still playing. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt about it. And we had really started to, to play much better baseball when, when this thing was all shut down. Uh, I, I think the, the team that gets the, the most favoritism in 94 is the team you mentioned, the yep. Expos. Yep. They, had, they had Pedro Martinez. And, uh, you know, up, up until the Washington Nationals, that franchise had never even thought about getting to the World yep. Series. And so it became kind of the favorite thing to, to talk about the Expos. But, when we played the Expos, uh, we played hand-in-hand. Hand. I mean, we were just as good as they were. On most days, we were better. But that they were good, too. And, and I can give it to them. But you never hear that mentioned about the Reds how good we were in 94. And we had an awfully good team. And we proved it the next year because we played awfully well and made it into the playoffs. Yeah, you get to the National League Championship Series. Ironically enough, you uh, lose in that series to Bobby Cox's Atlanta Braves in 96 96- you know, it's easy to say you had your best year because from a statistical standpoint, you lead the planet in saves. You have 44 of them. It's a Reds franchise record. You win the Rolades Relief Man of the Year, all that kind of stuff. Do, do you think that was your best year? Um, yeah, I, I do. I, I think between that and 1990. Uh, the, only, the only problem with 1990, Tom, is when because I was pitching so often, when I got to the month of September, I – I didn't even pitch in the month of September. I mean, my shoulder was hurting so bad that uh, the doctors were afraid that I had a torn labrum, which I really did. Nobody actually knew it because we didn't have surgery at the time. But, you know, they, they just shut me down. So as far as statistical measures, I mean, you look back at 90, you look at 96. I mean, they were both good years. But from my standpoint, the best year I've ever had was 1996. I mean, it not only – not only from a statistical standpoint, but just from a, a, a personal standpoint, from, from feeling that, that you contributed to your ball club in the best way you possibly could. Starting in 1997, you mentioned injuries. I mean, they start now to, to, to pile up for you. It's not to say you still didn't have some good seasons in St. Louis and Philadelphia. You did, where you picked up a lot of saves. Um, but, but, but is it safe to say or fair to say that those injuries took away the Jeff Brantley of 1996 and prior to that? Is that fair? I think there's no doubt about it. And, you know, it's, it, it's only of my own doing. And I don't know that I've even told this story before, but I remember having a ball game in St. Louis in 1996. And I was pitching in a game, and I got frustrated after the ball game because there were – a couple of things that, that happened that I I didn't agree with during the game, and I got into the tunnel, and I'm walking into the tunnel in St. Louis, and I kicked the concrete wall with my spikes. And when I did, I snapped off the front spike of my shoe, and I could feel the bottom of my right foot burning. Didn't think anything about it because I was madder than a cat on a high. I mean, I was upset. And got in the locker room, tearing my stuff off. I take my shoes off, and I look down, and I had two toes on my right foot that were solid black. And, I mean, that's how fast that happened. I thought, oh, boy. 
So I walked in the training room. I asked Mark Latine. I said, what's, what's going on? Not Mark Latine, but um, Greg Lynn. I said, what's going on with my foot here? He goes, what you do? He goes, you've broken your toes. Well, it was the, clo- the toes closest to my pinky. I said, wrap them up and don't tell anybody about it. Went on, pitched the rest of the year, didn't think anything about it, neither did anybody else. Um, the following year in spring training, I had to have surgery on my foot because I had, I had a broken bone in the bottom of the, um, the big toe that nobody knew about. Mm-hmm. They had to take it out. And really, that, that's kind of how everything kind of went full circle. Not only that right foot, but a year later, the right shoulder. And everything was downhill from there. Because once you tear your shoulder up, it's not like having Tommy John and you right. get to fix that ligament and you come back stronger than ever. Once you hurt your shoulder, it's hurt forever. You decide to retire uh, and walk right into the broadcast booth almost immediately. Um, you know, you're, you're not doing minor league games. Um, you're doing big league games for ESPN, studio, on-site, all that kind of thing. I, I think a lot of people out there think that, that, oh, man, that's easy. You know, you walk right off the field, you walk right <laughs> in the booth, and you're thinking, oh, man, you know, all I got to do is get in there and talk about baseball. Was that an easy transition for you, or was it one that you found yourself going, man, this is a lot different than I thought it was? I was more nervous my first day on the baseball tonight set than I was pitching in my first major league game. And I think the reason I was so nervous is because that's something that I've always wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I've wanted to do that since I was a little kid. So it, it, it meant more. It, it, I mean, pitching in the big leagues meant a lot. Don't get me wrong. But when you're, when you're realizing a dream that you've had and you never thought you would ever see, um, it, it makes you nervous. I, I can remember walking out of the set after my first baseball tonight show, and I was sweating through my suit. That's hard to do. Man. Yeah, it is. I mean, that is hard to do, especially <laughs> when you're sitting down. But I mean, that's how nervous I was. I didn't know what camera to look at. I've got people talking in both ears, and the guys talking to me on my left, my right. I, I didn't know where to look or yeah. what to say. Yeah. It's, you know, it, it really is. I, I always, it, it's why I always kind of roll my eyes a little bit when I'll, I'll, I'll read articles about, well, this player is going to retire this year. It doesn't matter what the sport, football, baseball, basketball, whatever it is. And, uh, they're they're going to walk right in the broadcast booth and be this big star. And I'm like, it, it, it's not the way it works. Now, you, you have become now a big star in Cincinnati. You've been there 15 years, um, starting in 2007. And here come the Reds again. And now all of a sudden you're like, all right, I pitched for him. I rooted for him as a kid. And now you are a mainstay in that uh, radio booth, of course, for, for most of that time uh, with my dad, Hall of Famer Marty Brenneman, and now with Tommy Thrall. Um, when, it, when it comes to working with uh, a personality like Marty Brenneman, and, and I'm going to just call him Marty Brenneman instead of dad because this question is directed to you. It has nothing to do with me. Is that hard to do to work every day with a guy that's been there that long, um, extremely popular, but also a lightning rod at the same time? I don't know that I would say that it, that it was hard. I think it was a great experience for me. I, I know that when, when the Reds asked me to come here or come back here from ESPN, 
the, the first thing that I did, because I, I talked to Joe Bick, who was my agent at the time, and we were kind of going back and forth. As I said, you know, because he, he was saying, well, you know, ESPN is a national broadcasting unit, and you're getting all this exposure. I said, Joe, this is the Reds. It, it's the Reds. And there was never really a, a second thought in my mind. Um, but the only, the only thing that I wanted to make sure that I did is to make sure that Marty was okay with it um, because I knew him from my playing days. And, you know, you don't want to come in and, and, and step into a, a sit in a seat that Joe Nuxall's been in and, and a Hall of Fame broadcaster that, that's next to him uh, without having some kind of communication with the guy. And the first thing I did is I picked up the phone. I, I called Marty. I said, you know, are you okay with me coming here? Because if you're not, I'll, I'll just stay where I'm at. I said, but I'd love to be able to do it. I'd love to be here. And he was as good as gold to me. He goes, I, he goes, I would love to have you. But that was something that I had to do. I, that was, I mean, just to, to give the man the respect that he deserves. You don't want to just step into a seat and say, well, here I am. How are you? <laughs> Shake hands on the first day. That doesn't work like that in my book. <laughs> yeah. Um, one final question, and you know, this is one I, I like to, to ask of, um, of a lot of our guests and, and like you, a number of guys that I've had on this show already, uh, you know, got married very young. Um, they were divorced. They have found, you know, the most special person in their lives, this second go round and started another family with that person. You know, when you're playing and you're gone and, you know, I brought up earlier, you know, your two uh, older kids, um, and, and obviously, you know, you missed a lot of time with Emily and Murphy because you're gone. Now, you were with them in the wintertime. And it's the same really now to a lesser extent, I guess, where with Elizabeth and Mason, you know, you're there all winter uh, and your wife Ashley is down there in, in, in your home of Mississippi with the kids. They come up a lot. You see them, you know, on and on. But – if I'm a parent out there and I had to learn something from Jeff Brantley that, you know, whether it's my first time as a parent or a second time as a parent, what did I do better the second time or what did I do well that, that, that I, I would try to share with someone if they ever asked me that question? Well, I, I think probably the, the first thing that I would say is besides your, besides your faith in God, your, your family should come very next. They should be the next one line, not baseball or not your job. And I think we have a tendency as as ball players to to look at baseball as sometimes as number one. You you put God by the wayside, you put your family by the wayside, and everything else that goes with it, and you just concentrate on playing baseball. Uh, it's the, I guess it's just the stress of the job and the travel and, and the, the striving to to be great. And I think that there are a lot of players that get out of the game and then you get home, you're retired and you look at the lady that you've been living with for the last 15, 20 years and say, who are you? Mm -hmm. Because you've been so focused on making your career great that you forgot about your family. And I I can honestly say I'm guilty of that. And and I think that that becomes a problem. And, And I would hand it to any player or broadcaster for that matter, that is able to not only, do what they're doing and be great at it, but also be great at being a husband and being a dad. That is some kind of task. Well, my friend, it has been a, uh, it's been a real pleasure. I mean, you know the way I feel about you and all the years, the last 14 years, we had a chance to work together. I enjoyed every single moment. 
You're a good man, a good friend, and uh, God bless you, buddy. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Thank you, Tom. I love you, man. Thanks for having me. You too, buddy. Jeff Brantley, the Cowboy, our guest this week on Dialed In. Hey, by the way, um, I want to thank Mike Reed uh, because, you know, uh, this was a guy, if you haven't listened to that edition of Dialed In, please go back and listen to it. You know, basically, recap story is all-world defensive lineman at Penn State, top 10 pick in the draft, pro bowler three of his first four years, quits at 26 years old to become a musician, has written 55 number one hits for a bunch of different people. But but he's also a friend of mine, and I said, look, I said, I've been hunting through music, right? Been hunting through music, I can't find anything I like, and, and I'm too cheap to go pay for it. So I said, Mike, could you just whip up something? Five hours later, bang. He's in his recording studio out in Nashville, and there it is. And he just sends it, how's this? I can change it, I can change it. I'm like, Mike, you've already spent too much time on it. This is absolutely awesome, so I cannot thank you enough. So I, you know, even though this guy, by the way, just uh, a month ago, just finished writing songs for Kenny Chesney, well, guess what? Tom Brenneman can say, I'm just like Kenny Chesney. So he's writing songs for him, Neil Diamond, for crying out loud. And now I can be in the same sentence as those guys. All right. We thank Dave Armbruster, our engineer, as always. And we'll look forward to catching up with you next week. I'm Tom Brenneman. Thanks so much for joining us. So long. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.